Hello, and welcome to She Dynasty. I'm Valerie Moiselle, and these are the women who rule. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to She Dynasty. I am very excited to introduce everyone to Shaniqua McClendon. She is a political strategist and sought after speaker and commentator on media, politics, voting, and race. She is the senior political director for Crooked Media, home to the popular podcast Pod Save America, and currently a fellow at USC Center for Political Future. She is also a keyboard member at Register Her. Hi, Shaniqua. How are you? Good. Hi, Valerie. How are you? Good. Thank you so much for chatting with me today. Super excited. Lots of great, great info to learn from you. Thank you for being here. I'm excited to share and be able to chat with you today. So I know we met through, you know, a mutual friend, colleague, Rachel, who, you know, got me excited about kind of you and learning more about you. And she was just raving about you and the work that you do. And it was obviously through the the lens of register her, which we're going to learn about, but obviously you have so much more that you are doing and involved with. So very, very excited to hear about your journey and your story and everything that you've got going on. Yeah, no, I'm excited to be able to chat with you and share. I, I think for a long time, I was nervous to like put my story in, in kind of the work that I do, but I realized like my life and experiences are literally why I do this work. So I think it's important to share. Fantastic. All right. Well, before we get into um, all of the great things that you're kind of involved with today and how to get involved and all of that fun stuff. I want to hear a little bit about your background, Um, you know, just your childhood, just briefly tell us about where you're originally from, Um, you know, a little bit about what your childhood was like, and maybe a few, any sparks that you had when you were a kid that, you know, really excited you that might be different than what you're doing today, but maybe, you know, what you thought you might be doing when you grew up. Yeah. Um, so I, I was born in New York, uh, in Queens. I lived there until I was about nine. Um, and during that time, uh, I have a twin sister, so we were born at the same time and have a younger sister, um, as well. Um, she's about five years younger than me. So, uh, we were all born in New York. Um, but my parents were pretty young when they had us at at least me and my twin sister, um, they were 19. And so I think they always <laughs> told us the story of how they found out there were two of us in there and how my father's face just like went white <laughs> because they were not expecting to have twins. Um, but, um, when I was about nine, they split up and we ended up moving to North Carolina. Well, we, my sisters and mother ended up moving to North Carolina, uh, because that's where her side of the family is from. So we went to go live with my grandmother and, you know, things were not, um, they weren't, they weren't the easiest. It wasn't, you know, I definitely didn't have the hardest life out of, you know, uh, lots of people in this country, but, um, we moved into my grandmother's home, which was like a family, um, owned, on family owned land, but it was a pretty small home that we were staying in. Eventually my mother got an apartment, um, two bedrooms so that me and my two sisters had to share. Um, she gave us the master bedroom to share, but you know, my mother had to work really hard to, to make ends meet and not only make, she didn't only make ends meet, she made sure we had access to all the other things students were doing. And so, you know, all of middle school, there were these annual big field trips and she would um, make sure we could go, uh, me and my sister, again, being twins, everything is double. Uh, and even I remember when we went to Florida in eighth grade, that was a $500 trip. And, you know, we kept our room clean. We kept our grades up because we really wanted to go. And she was like, You'll, you're going, it's fine. You know, I'll, I'll work it out. But my mother worked two jobs and seeing that, seeing her have to work so hard um, to provide, it really just kind of instilled in me that I wanted to grow up and make a bunch of money. So in high school, I started taking a lot of business classes, accounting, and, um, you know, I was president of Future Business Leaders of America and just had my sights set on getting, you know, a business degree and having some lucrative career. Uh, but as I kind of navigated college, you know, you learn more, you start to understand the way the world works. And I started to see that, you know, we didn't grow up poor because of one individual decision. Um, 
a lot of people are in that situation. And a lot of it comes from um, a lot of different factors, but definitely our elected leaders are a big part of that. And so, you know, I had gotten a job offer from Credit Suisse after college and my father was pretty upset that I didn't take it, but something was just pulling me in another direction. And I kept telling everyone, I just want to help people. And they were like, okay, how do you want to help people? What does that mean? And I said, I don't know, but you know, I will figure it out. And I went to work at United Way after, after college, it's a temporary job making $11 an hour, but I really enjoyed it. And it put me kind of in touch with the people that we were serving. You know, I got to see, um, I was helping to raise money. And so I got to see where the money was going and it just really started to plant all the seeds toward me wanting to work in the public sector. Um, and then what kind of just put the final stamp on it. Um, my senior year of college was when Barack Obama was running for president and I just became obsessed with politics that year. So it all just kind of came together. <laughs> I can imagine. Well, your mom sounds like a remarkable woman just from what you're telling me and what I read in your you know, in the pre-interview questionnaire that you um, so kindly filled out for me. Um, what did she do? What did she do for a living? My mother, uh, so my mother passed away in 2010, um, about, what is it now, 20, 12 years ago almost. But uh, before she passed, she was actually an administrative assistant at UNC Chapel Hill, which was always like a bit of a joke because she worked at Blue Cross Blue Shield for a long time. And had she been working at UNC Chapel Hill before I went, I could have gone at like some kind of discount or for free possibly. But, you know, it didn't work out that way. When she was working two jobs, she actually worked at Domino's Pizza, which was um, where I ended up working um, when I was in high school because she knew the managers and was like, hey, my girls are looking for jobs. So they hired both of us um, and we were able to work there. But yeah, she, um, you know, she she had been at her job, her new job like three months or maybe even less than that. I just remember that I remember them telling us we can't pay out the life insurance policy because she has not been here long enough. And it was, you know, we're trying to navigate all of this. Yeah, I think we were 22, 23, maybe 18. Uh, no, she wasn't even 18. I'm probably 16. And yeah, had no idea what we were doing. But sometimes I, I often, you know, it's hard not to, or for me not to think, you know, did she achieve the things that she was working toward? Um, and, you know, was she happy with the life that she had? And I think, and it felt a little selfish to think this way, but after some time went by, I really thought that me and my sisters were able to handle that and navigate her death so well, because she actually prepared us for, you know, some of those tough times in life where you just have to kind of figure things out. Um, and it feels selfish because, you know, I don't want to say that a mother's sole purpose is, you know, her children and how, how they turn out, but she just poured so much into us. Um, and literally is why I am who I am today. Um, did one of you assume kind of the role of, of the mom with, between the three of you? It's interesting when, so when my mother was alive and she worked, you know, two jobs, I was the one who was cooking dinner and making sure everything was taken care of. But I think but after she passed away, I would say my twin sister kind of fell into that role where she was just, you know, and now we're in our early 20s. And I'm like, I don't need this extra like oversight from my twin sister. But she definitely um, kind of filled that role and honestly took care of the really, really hard parts um, after my mother passed away, like finding an estate lawyer and figuring all of that out. And, you know, the, everyone was just so kind. The, the attorney said, you know, y'all are young. I can't imagine my daughter have, having to deal with this and gave us like a discount on his services. Um, but yeah. Um, and, you know, my younger sister is still uh, still the baby. Um, she's I mean, she's going to be 30 next month, but still still the young one. And you can tell she's the youngest. <laughs> and when you were in grade school, what did you think you wanted to be when you grew up? So I know I mentioned I wanted to like work in business, but before that, I really wanted to be a psychologist and not because, not for the good reasons. Like I have a therapist now, she's great. None of the reasons of like helping people and helping them navigate things. I just thought that I would be a therapist and just hear people's like problems and gossip. <laughs> I would just like hear what they had going on in their lives and didn't have a full concept of what um, a psychologist actually does. Um, but then, you know, when I, um, as I got older, I thought I wanted to be an accountant. I don't know why I got, I, I was good at math. But then as I 
got to calculate, I realized <laughs> not so great uh, on all those things. And even taking accounting classes in college, um, it was very different than what I, the accounting classes I took in um in, in high school, but yeah, a therapist, not for, not for good reasons. What kind of high school did you go to? Was it public, private? Um, did you know in high school, did you have a little bit more direction of kind of where you wanted to, to kind of be or head? Yeah. Um, so high school, I went to a public high school, um, in Creedmoor, North Carolina, a very small town. My, my best friend's father was mayor for like 30 years. Um, and, uh, and, him and his wife went to Carolina, which is where I ended up going. But initially, you know, when I was in high school, I'm taking all these business classes, but I lived in New York for about nine years of my life. And then Creedmoor was like tiny, you know, sometimes you would drive home and you might see cows and tractors just kind of like roaming about. And it was very different from what I had seen for, you know, at least half of my life at that point. Um, and so I was pretty set on, on getting out of there, um, just like getting as far away as I could. I was pretty set on getting out of there. Um, and part of it also was just high school is like really interesting. I had a great time. Like I had a group of friends. We like, we, you know, always hung out together. Like I remember we did this dumb thing where it was all women, but the, these guys wanted to like hang out with our, our crew. And so we made them fill out applications <laughs> and <laughs> they were so like, they well, initially did it. That's a great idea. I love that. <laughs> well, ended up, like at first they were like, okay, we'll do it. And then they're like, we're not doing that. And they started their own little click. And then all of senior year, we had this battle going on with each other, like water, water balloon fights and things like that. So that was the fun parts, but then some parts were, you know, not as great. Um, my, you know, our, I don't know the exact number. I think our school was like, it was definitely majority white, but probably maybe 30% black, but most of the black students, um, you know, I was in accelerated programs, AP classes. And so I was one of very few black students in, in that, in those courses. And my grades were really important to me. Um, awesome. Initially, because I was competing with my twin sister, who she was not engaging in this competition, but like I just had to get the best grades. But eventually I understood that to go to college, I would need to have um, these grades. And I remember the first time I went to the guidance counselor's office to see what my class ranking was. And I was I was 13 and I said, I want to be on the top 10. So <laughs> that is what I started working toward. And by senior year, I was, um, I think I graduated number eight, but we were in uh, AP English and people were starting to get their college decisions back. And I had wanted to go to the University of Miami and I, they had this two part um, application and I never even sent in the second part because my mother said, where do, why do you think you're going to Miami to go to college at 18 years old? And so, you know, I thought I was settling, but I applied to UNC Chapel Hill and I ended up getting in and five, five of us ended up getting in, which was rare. Normally, you know, my school wasn't like, you know, some amazing high school. Normally one or two students got into UNC Chapel Hill, but this year five of us got in. And so our valedictorian was one of them, um, a guy named Robert, um, my best friend, Rachel, which we weren't that close at the time, but college brought us together. And then other friends, so Victoria and Andrea. And this woman, Amy, who got, I don't know if she got waitlisted or rejected. She can so out of the five of us who got in, four of us were people of color and our valedictorian was a white woman. And she came, at least to me, I don't remember all the rest of it because I couldn't believe she said this to me. And she said, you only got in because you're black. And it just like hit me like a ton of bricks because my grades have been important to me. I had been working really hard. I was in the top 10 of our class. I was in this AP class with her. You know, why was that what she reduced it to? And instead of challenging that, I really internalized it. And our final project in in that class was to write a speech that our uh, peers would grade. And I wrote a speech about how bad affirmative action was and I was, I think I was just trying to tell her through this project, like, no, I worked really hard and no one gave me, you know, a handout. And um, it, it still sits with me to this day um, because it, it really had a profound effect on me. But literally, you know, my first semester at UNC, I took a race and ethnic relations course and 
affirmative actions was uh, action was one of the um, topics we covered. And so then I got an actual education on what affirmative action was, why it was ever put in place. Um, and, you know, it, it wasn't that long that I was like, oh, okay, wait, I actually get this. And I was starting to understand race more and in the context of, you know, American history. Um, but it still is something that sits with me to this day that I let someone else kind of push me toward a belief that, you know, I had done no research on, I, I just was trying to put something, um, and yeah, I, you know, this is unnecessary for me to say, but like, she didn't even finish college. Like, I don't think she got rejected because of, of whatever she thinks she got rejected for. As, as a mom, who's uh, just going through this college process right now, my daughter, you know, just got accepted to a bunch of colleges. Mm-hmm. I, I am just blown away by how, like the mean girl thing that happens, you know, uh, just across the board. Um, I just cannot get over, um, you know, the competitiveness and the comments, yeah. the snarkiness, and, you know, so much of, you know, my, my values are about women supporting women. And, yeah. you know, it, it's just, it just blows my mind that, you know, people yeah. can there. So I can imagine how a comment like that can, you know, people don't realize like when they say one thing to you, it can yeah. stick with you forever, you yeah. know? Yeah. And, and the fact that you're talking about it so many years later, <laughs> like, it's, I don't know, but think about like mm-hmm. that, I understand the profound effect of those words. And it's, you know, I think it's a really good lesson for people to hear, like, be careful what you say to people. It shapes their life. It affects who they are. I mean, look, it seems like it affected you in a good way because you took took the power back and you did something obviously really powerful with it. But I feel like you would have ended up there anyway. Right. Yeah. Without having to like (laughs) bad about it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's true. I mean, I even, I wrote about it in my grad school application essay. Like it is still very much present, uh, in my mind. Wow. So, um, so after that was the internship in between after grad school or before, uh, the white house internship. Yes. Yes. So I, um, so after graduation, so I turned down this credit suite job, um, and, I worked at United Way. And so the United Way job was actually a temporary position. They bring uh, development and associates on uh, to raise money um, during their development season. And my boyfriend at the time sent me this White House internship application. And I'm just like, oh my gosh, I could intern for Barack Obama. And so, you know, I turned it in like hours before it's due because I just wanted it to be perfect. And, uh, yeah, a lot of time went by. And then I don't know who was in charge of the internship program, but they sent out an email with all the people who made it to the next round, but they did not blind copy us. They copied us on it. And so I literally looked through all of the email addresses to see if there was anyone from UNC Chapel Hill um, or yeah, I just, it was big mistake on their part. Anyway, so I made it to the next round and the process ended up taking longer than it was supposed to, but at the time I was working at United Way, but also working part-time at Macy's and, you know, Macy's is great. It's a fine shopping experience, but I did not enjoy working there. I didn't enjoy pushing credit cards on people and trying to get them to buy extra towels. And I remember I was just really ready to get out of there. And my United Way job was ending soon, which meant I was going to be going back to my bank teller job. And I had been waiting and waiting. And then I went over to my phone while I was at Macy's and I had a voicemail. And then I looked at my email and it all just said, congratulations. And I literally ran around the store, just like a crazy person, because I could not believe um, that I had been selected for this internship, especially, you know, I didn't have, you know, fancy recommendation letters from, you know, high up people and, my resume actually at the time, I, I still believe the reason I got that internship is because of all the volunteer experience on there. Um, because when I applied, I'm not, I don't, uh, was I at, you know, I don't know, but when I applied, it was mostly like my business stuff I had done. Um, but I filled my resume with all of the volunteer work I had done when, um, 
yeah, when there was at some point I didn't, I wasn't working. Oh yeah. Before United Way started, I was only working at Macy's. So I had a ton of free time during the day and I would spend it volunteering. Um, yeah. And I guess it stood out enough and I got to intern in the office of presidential correspondence, which is amazing. So, um, you know, oftentimes when people kind of put their name in the hat for that, it's like, I'm never going to get this. You know, was that your kind of like, you're just kind of see what happens. Was it, did you think you had a shot in the beginning or you were just kind of like, you never know. No, it was, you know, my boyfriend at the time, he encouraged me to apply because I, I, I had that thought of, there's no way that this is going to happen for me. Like there's all these people from these fancy schools that are going to get this. And, and my application, I, it was pretty earnest. Like it was just about education because I really cared about education policy. Um, And then we had to demonstrate a time we were, um, you know, took the leadership role. And I definitely underestimated my ability to get this internship. And then, um, and, and then I got it and, at each step, I kept saying, there's no way I make it to the next round. There's no way I make it to the next round. And then I got to the interview phase and um, everyone at United Way was so excited. They were like, you you know, we really want you to get this. And I remember I had the interview, they cleared out the conference room so I could go in there and take it myself. And I, I remember preparing so much and my answers were just like perfect. And that was the first time I hung up, like I did anything in the process and I thought, okay, I actually feel good about this. But then they took forever with telling us, they said, okay, we're going to tell you in this many weeks. And then they're like, there's a delay, there's a delay. And I was just like, okay, maybe I was a little too confident, but then I got that message when I was. um, It sounds like a political version of like American Idol moving forward. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) Something like that. Um, Tell me, tell me, what did it mean to you um, to intern for the first black president of the United States? I mean, I can't imagine, like it was, you know, it was obviously so meaningful to so many people, um, but obviously I'm obviously not black. So I just want to hear from your perspective, because I'm sure that that was like a next level experience. Like, what did that mean to you? It meant a lot. Like I still, yeah, it meant so much. And I'll just share a quick story. When on election night in 2008, I was a senior in college and me and my roommate had moved off campus. So we're, I don't know, maybe a mile from campus. And at UNC, you only rush Franklin Street when you beat Duke or you win a national championship. And 11 o'clock, it had been called for Barack Obama. And we both run out of our rooms and we're like, do we go to Franklin Street? Like, this feels like a reason to rush Franklin Street. And, you know, Twitter wasn't so big at the time. So we couldn't just look on Twitter to see what folks were doing. And so we just decided we're going to go up there. And we found a random parking spot. I'm sure we weren't supposed to be parked there, but we jump out the car and it's drizzling, but there are students running back and forth across the street. And so normally the police will shut down the intersection when we win a game because they know what's gonna happen. But this time um, they got there after us. And so then they had to kind of traffic control. Um, but I say that to say like that moment, like I just remember, and I still get like teary eyed thinking about it because I in the primary, I, I did vote for Barack Obama, but I told everyone I spoke to, I was like, he makes me like excited about all of this and I'm going to vote for him, but he's not going to win. Hillary Clinton's going to win. That's going to be what happens. So for him to actually win, you know, one, I felt like my vote mattered. Um, and, and even though I doubted it, I still, you know, voted with um, the intentions that I wanted and he won. And I just couldn't, I just, I couldn't believe it because I never, I just never thought that would happen. You know, my grandmother definitely never thought and to see that was amazing. And then when I got the internship, I mean, everyone in my family was so excited. My mother, she wasn't upset, upset, but um, I, uh, my phone was dying on the way home from Macy's the night I found out. And we lived like in the sticks, um, really rural part. It took me about an hour to get home. And, but I just wanted to tell her in person. I did not want to call. I did not want to text. I had been texting people the whole time. And then I walked in and I was like, guess what? And she's like, what? And I tell her and she's like, why didn't you call me? And she's like running around the house. And when it's I sent her, um, it's too important. You exactly. know, so, you have they're more important. You know, it's like, it's the difference between, you know, who your friends are, like your really good friends are based on like who wishes you happy birthday on Instagram, who sends you a text, or who actually picks up the phone and calls you. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Like when something's really important, it's not, 
you know, it's yeah. not a text. It's not. So you I want understand. to like celebrate it together and like feel the excitement. Did you get to interact with um, President Obama? Tell us a little bit about that if you did. Not a ton, except, so this is the picture I ended up, this is, I still have this email exchange um, from uh, my mother. Um, because she, she passed a few months after my internship ended, but we generally know we, my, we would sneak into his speeches if we could, if it wasn't like in a super secure place, but they also, a component of the internship program was to volunteer at a DC public school and bunch of over, I thought because we were a bunch of overachievers, everyone would try to be a team lead, but no, everyone did not try to be a team lead. So it's pretty easy for me to become a team lead for Benjamin Banneker High School. And we just went over to the school every um, week uh, and did tutoring and stay of the internship. We all knew we would get a picture with the president, like all 120 of us. And so they have all of us out there. They say, get in line by height. So we're all trying to like get in line by height. And then the internship coordinator says, and the 17 of you who are um, group leads, please step forward. And I was like, oh my gosh, what is happening? They walked us over to the Rose Garden and he came out and he like introduced himself to each of us and shook our hand. And we got like a smaller group photo. And then we, you know, the 17 of us got to walk with him over to the larger group. Like it looked like we were his entourage or something. And they they snapped some photos of it. So that was the like one in serious interaction. And then I had an interaction with the first as well, again, around a picture we were taking. Um, we, so for that speech, they told everyone you would sit in your groups, your volunteer groups, but the group lead got to go first to take out seats. And my, our, and the people running the intern in my department internship were like, you can go over early because I was actually in a different building. They're like, you can go over early. So I am like, you know, front center in the middle. And then I counted off however many seats we needed. And when my team walked in, they were like so excited. And at the end, we get to take a picture with the first lady and the photographer told us, you know, take off your badges. So they're not in the photo. And I just was so nervous. I forgot to do it. And then I looked down and I was like, oh, and she looks over and she's like, it's okay. It's not a big deal. It's just like a fashion thing. Like it's totally fine. And I was just like, okay, <laughs> you know, it's fine. You say it's fine. It's great. And then after that, everyone was like, what were you two talking about? And <laughs> thought that she was, so every, a lot of people always told me that I looked like her and they all thought that she was telling me that I looked like her. It's like, of course, that is not what she's saying to me, but yeah, it was, um, yeah, it was a really, really cool experience. The affordable care act was passed while I, while I was there. And it's ultimately what, um, made me want to go work on the Hill. Amazing. Such an incredible experience. Yeah. Awesome. And so from there you went to Harvard. Yes. Which was another, um, it was similar to the internship where I was just kind of like, you know, I'm going to try this. When I applied my, uh, my boss had lost her reelection. So I had tons of time to apply to this program and I had put off grad school several times before that. The most recent time was 2014. I applied to Duke. I got in, I sent my deposit in, I put my two weeks notice in. And then I was just like, oh no, this does not feel like the right decision. And then she lost. And I thought, man, maybe I should have gone down. Uh, but deep, another thing that was with me is Duke, what I think was like the number six public policy program at the time. And I thought if I can get into this one, why not try to get into Harvard? Uh, and so I applied, but again, it was still one Harvard of those. Number one? No, I think it was number two at the time. I think it fluctuates between like Harvard, um, the Harris School at, yeah, Michigan State's the green one. I'm probably screwing up what university it's at, but okay. uh, school in Michigan and then Berkeley. Um, yeah, um, but yeah, uh, you know, Harvard, so even if it wasn't number one, still has that like shininess to it. Um, and I ended up getting in and I, yeah, that was still, that was one of those moments. I had already taken a new job um, and I just wasn't expecting it. And I just got an email that said, your application has been updated on the site. And so now I'm like, what was my password for the site? And I finally log in and I'm with all my coworkers because we went down to North Carolina for a staff retreat. 
And so, yeah, those are the first people who found out that I got in and it's still, still surreal. I, you know, I, I hate that I so often am like, there's no way this is going to happen, but I'm going to try. I'm glad I try anyway, but I wish I had more faith in myself that it would work out. You know what this is telling me, Shaniqua, is hopefully you are going to continue with just trying for just yeah. going full because obviously you have beyond what it takes every time you do it. So, you know, I'm hoping to keep following your career and, you know, hopefully just seeing every time you, you know, you know, kind of hit that, that big milestone. So amazing. So inspirational. Can I just add um, some, I think Melody Barnes said it, we had a speaker series at the, at the white house and um, she, I'm pretty sure it was her said, you know, I know everyone gets up here every week and they tell you all of the successes in their lives. Um, but you don't get to those successes without the failures. And I hate that. I feel like I've skipped over some of those failures because I always try to make sure I'm working them in because that is why I am here. Like I work at Crooked right now. I got turned down from another job I was trying to get. I ended up going to Harvard, but the first time I applied to grad school, I got rejected from Georgetown. And so there are all these things, my White House internship or yeah, working on the Hill I got turned down from so many jobs after my White House internship. I thought it would be easy. It wasn't, but then I ended up working on the Hill. And so I just wanted to throw that in there because. Absolutely. I mean, that's part part of Chi Dynasty is about the snags because what I learned from every woman who I interview is those snags are what help get you to the next phase, to the greatness. Learning from those moments is what, you know, propels you forward. So absolutely. Absolutely. Well, let's transition. So let's talk about Crooked Media. Tell us, um, for those who you know might not be familiar, what is Crooked Media? What do you do there? Tell us all about it. I first want to start with how I got there. Um, a classmate of mine, Yasmin, uh, asked me what I wanted to do. And I, after the job I had wanted didn't work out, I thought hard about what I wanted to do. And then I told her, after everything I saw with the 2017 election, I want to work at either a media company or a company with a lot of um, influence who can leverage that influence to uh, increase civic engagement. Mm -hmm. And she said, oh, like this job. And she literally just sent me the job that I have now. Um, And the reason it's interesting is one, because I mean, she has now like a jobs list because she's just really good at matching people with stuff. But before I went to grad school, um, I went on a birthday trip for a mutual friend that I have with Dan Pfeiffer's wife. And I was sending a goodbye email out and she had told us, she was like, Hey, you know, Dan has this little podcast he's working on. Like, can you listen to it? And it was what eventually became Pod Save America. Um, But for those of you who don't know what, what Pod Save America is. So that is our flagship podcast at Crooked Media. Crooked Media was founded in 2017 after Donald Trump was elected, our, um, our three founders, um, John Favreau, John Lovett, and Tommy Vitor all come from the Obama administration and wanted to change the way that politics was being covered. I think a lot of us saw how awful it was in the 2016 election, uh, and they wanted to create a space um, mostly for progressives, but just where honest conversations could, could happen. And we are all clear that we are Democrats and we don't hide that, but if Democrats are doing awful things, they will talk about that as well. Right. And a big part of the reason they founded the company was so that um, they could actually like tell people what to do to change these things. So often when you watch the news, it's depressing story after upsetting story after sad story, and you might get one good, you know, feel good story in there. But with all of those negative things, no one ever says, and here's what you can do to change that. And that is what um, they wanted to do with Crooked Media, which is why um, I was hired to start our political department. Uh, And I kind of think of our team as more of an impact team. Most of our work is political, but, you know, even when COVID started, we uh, organized a fundraising effort that raised $2 million for organizations that were providing COVID relief. Um, uh, Yeah, so I like to think of our team as an impact team. But on my second interview uh, was with John Favreau, and he said, we have this huge audience. I never thought we were going to need to have this position, but we have this huge audience that is willing and ready to do things. We just need to make sure we're putting them um, to work in impactful places. And so uh, the first project I worked on was Vote Save America. And initially that was an effort to make sure to create a kind of one-stop shop where people could find out like what their voter registration deadline was, 
Do you need an ID to vote in your state? And if so, what kind of ID do you need? Uh, and then, you know, who's on the ballot? Like, what do these positions do? We took statewide ballot initiatives and took them out of legal jargon and just put them in plain language that people could understand. And we were really just trying to solve some of the main obstacles to voting, which, you know, people always say vote. They always say register to vote. And they don't tell you exactly how to do that. And so that's what we were trying to solve. Like, what are the logistical parts of this? And then if you want to do more and actually get involved, which a lot of people wanted to do in 2018, we provided um, uh, people with information on where they could have the greatest impact with um, their time and their money uh, on, on elections. And so it's been great. Last, uh, last cycle, we had a really popular program called Adopt a State, and 300,000 people signed up for it. Uh, we raised we raised fifty million dollars over um, twenty nineteen and twenty. Yeah, it was yeah. it was one of the most amazing things I had ever seen. We uh, the summer of twenty twenty had these organizing training, just kind of teaching people about the background on organizing, how to organize. And the first one we had, it was virtual, but sixteen thousand people showed up, and we were just blown away by um, how excited people were to participate. But our shows, the host of our shows, especially Pod Save America, they've built so much trust with our audience that once, you know, once we ask them to do something, they really show up and, and do it. Amazing. And how long have you been there? It will be four years on May 14th. So I'm coming up on my four year anniversary. Perfect. I mean, obviously um, a perfect uh, synergy uh, bridge with um, Register Her. Yeah. Tell us, tell us about that organization. Such, such an, again, another very important organization. So Register Her is kind of a spinoff of Fund Her, which is an organization that raises money to elect um, progressive women to state legislatures. Um, but in order to elect women, um, you know, you need people to vote for them, um, which you know, happens sometimes. It still hasn't happened at the presidency level. Um, but a big part of what we know is that, um, you know, women will support women. And um, even more important to, than that, there's a lot of women who are not registered to vote. And in order to make sure that women's interests and desires are represented in our representative democracy, they need to be able to participate in that. And so Register Her focuses on um, making sure women are registered to vote. That, you know, it seems like it's so simple and everyone's doing it, but there are a lot of voter suppression efforts around the country um, that will, you know, purge people from voting rolls or make it really difficult to vote. Uh, but then there's just life. And a lot of um, low-income women and, and women of color, there's a lot of other obstacles, be it family obligations um, or work, not being able to, to access um, registration as easy as some right. of the rest of us, not having, you know, maybe the identification and all those things that you need to, to register. Register her basically kind of meets these women where they are to make sure that they have access to the ballot. Uh, and when women vote, they tend to, when they're registered, they tend to have a turner, a higher turnout rate um, than men. I mean, of course we want men to vote too, but we want women to be just as uh, participatory in, a, in our elections as well. And the first step in that is making sure they're registered. Um, and it, it, the reason I love register her, and this is something that's really important to our work at Vote Save America and Crooked generally is meeting people where they are. Everyone can't come to your voter registration drive or go to you know an elections office and get registered. So by meeting people where they are, be it at you know a health clinic, a social service office, um, you can make sure they're registered and not disrupt their lives and still help them go on uh, about their work. And the, another reason being registered is so important. Most campaigns only talk to registered voters. And so you have a lot of people who are never approached by a campaign or an organization to even ask, you know, what do you care about? Because they're not registered to vote. And so the simple act of getting more women registered to vote means more women are being engaged in our political process. And, and then that hopefully will lead to, to greater participation. Unbelievable. So it's just this huge vast amount of untapped potential that you that register her is kind of working on to just change outcomes of elections. I mean, it's just amazing. You know, you, you said it so beautifully, just, you know, so many of these, um, these women, you know, don't have access or, you know, don't really understand the process. And so the fact that the organization is kind of helping, you know, kind of overcome some of those issues 
so important because again, here we are, you know, women who obviously have very important issues that we're dealing with. And oftentimes, you know, there's a lot of men making decisions, right? Um, So, you know, it's just, again, the importance of having that voice and that a part of the conversation, like people don't understand the impact it can make. And, you know, I do want to encourage everyone who's listening um, to, you know, check out the website, there's a really powerful video on register her's website that kind of explains what it, what, what it is the, the organization does. The registerher.org is where you can check it out. Um, obviously you can see how to get involved, um, but really some powerful information on there, you know, just things that I didn't even think about, you know, and how important it is um, to get more women registered and the impact it can have. Yeah. And one other thing I would add is registration is kind of that first point that we can bring uh, women into the process. And once I think this is the case for anyone, but uh, we definitely need it from women because there are so many men in elected office who are making all of these decisions. And part of it is because they are just, you know, have different values. But there are also some men in office who I think our values align, but they just are really unaware of what they should be doing. Uh, And ideally, you have a woman uh, present in those decision making. Um, But you get registered, you start to get engaged um, around these issues. And hopefully, at, at some point, you really, you know, you start showing up, you start holding folks accountable and making your voice heard. And just generally, we have more civic uh, participation, not just the act of voting, but really being engaged in this process and, and starting to transform um, who our leaders are and what they're doing. Fantastic. Well, the, the, the impact you're making is really so, so impressive. Amazing. Just absolutely amazing. So I do want to um, go back to um, talking about, because you brought this up, a few of the snags that you kind of had to overcome in your life, because, you know, sometimes they're the smallest moments that we brought this up earlier that kind of really get you thinking, right? Um, So one of the things that you talked about that really struck me was um, about how for a long time, your name was an issue. And I wanted to touch on that because I thought it was a really important topic. So tell us about that. Yeah. Um, so from a very young age, I remember in kindergarten, my teacher sent a note home and said, Hey, you know, uh, Miss McClendon, can you work with Shaniqua on spelling her name? She's like one of the few students in class who, who can't do that. And, you know, it didn't take long. Like, um, I think I was a pretty smart kid. And so my mother sat me down and it was like, this is how you spell your name. And I was like, okay, I got it. And then the next day in class, I was like, okay, I can, um, spell my name. And at the time that didn't, you know, translate to much to me, but as I got older, um, at first it was teachers not being able to pronounce it, which that happens. Um, but then it was not even trying to pronounce it and everyone else's first name would be called, but I would just be called McClendon. And I thought, okay, well, okay. Is my name like that hard to say? Um, and you, you know, you just asked me, And then as I got older, that's when the like really negative connotations start. I started to understand those and people, I think they thought they were being, I don't know. They would say, you don't seem like a Shaniqua, but you don't look like a Shaniqua. And then I thought, okay, what does that mean? And I started to understand it meant, you know, kind of the stereotypical, um, version of a black woman, you know, what we maybe see in TV a lot, um, negative depictions. And I remember when I was, um, when I was 16, I worked at Domino's Pizza and I, like, I was one of the best employees there. Every, every month, if you hit certain marks, whoever did the best got $20. The only month I didn't get that $20 was my first month on the job. And so I often trained people. And so a new driver was starting and I was on the phone, but I could hear my colleague saying, and this is Shaniqua, she's going to train you. I couldn't see them, but I heard some silence and then my coworker responded to the new driver and said, oh no, she's not like that. And I thought, what could have possibly, what, what face did he make or what did he whisper that I didn't hear that that is what, you know, she said to him. And then, you know, people, I remember I went to Panera once, gave my name, was asked if I had a different name to use. And I said, no, here's my debit card. Like you can read it off of there. Even the well-meaning people who said to me after I graduated college, you should use your initials or, 
you know, use a different name on your resume so that you can, you know, get a job. And I thought, if people are not hiring me because of my name, like I literally do not want to work there. And it wasn't until um, in 2013, a man named Phil Branch sent me a random Facebook message and said, hey, um, I'm doing this documentary called Searching for Shaniqua about women with ethnic names and kind of what they go through. And I thought, oh, wow, this has been, (laughs) this has been like my life experience. And so I immediately was like, yes, I would love to participate. And I went to one like um, kind of discussion he was doing um, for the documentary, but then that was it. And things kind of fell apart a little, or I just didn't hear from him. And then fast forward to 2015, you know, he was like, Hey, sorry about that. We had some production issues, but we're back on track. And so he ended up spending two days with me. Um, I had an alumni brunch that I had helped put together one day. And then I went to a friend's brunch the next day. And yeah, we did some interviews and stuff, but that documentary and the subsequent like movie discussions we did after it really, I was really ashamed and embarrassed by my name. Um, I would always lead with my resume when I met people, I would talk about, you know, my accomplishments and where I went to school. And then I would say what my name was so that they would kind of not think, um, what did you ever consider changing your name? No, no. You know, I remember, um, the reason I would never do this, um, when I was in college, I won, I was elected president of our black student movement and our newspaper did a story. And, uh, at the time you could comment anonymously online and I had worn a Carolina hoodie for the interview. And that's what they took a photo of me in, which lots of students did that, but it turned into this whole thing of why didn't she dress up for the interview? Why, like, is she so casual? And then someone wrote, and of course her name is Shaniqua. And I told my mother that story and like, I could see the hurt in her eyes. And so after that, even though it still was an issue for me, I was like, okay, this is what I go by. But after the film, I actually like, I was just confident at that point. I didn't, I really didn't care anymore. And I thought if people have an issue, like that's on them because they're not your people. Exactly. You know, you, people turn into the people they are, but it's not because of what their name is. And if you have made some assumptions about me because of my name, then okay. Don't well, do you it. Can weed out some bad people really quickly. So that's, yeah. that's one way to look at it, right? You don't want to deal with those people anyway. And good exactly. for you for just kind of, again, taking back the power and the ownership. And obviously, you know, there's a lot of pride because it's something your mom named you. You have yeah. a lot of love your mom and you wouldn't take that away from her. So yeah. I, I love, for me, I, I love that piece of it. I think that is, you know, so special and important. You know, I was, I was on clubhouse, like, I don't know, six, seven months ago. And there was a room about literally the topic was how has your name affected your life? Oh, you know, wow. it was the most interesting conversation and people were sobbing. People were crying. I mean, for different, very different reasons, you know, about, and like things you would never think, you know, somebody would think their name meant something, but, you know, obviously so apropos. And then there was a bunch of women in the room named Karen. And they were, <laughs> they were really struggling, but all different reasons, you know? So I think it's, it's um, a very interesting topic about how, you know, a name can affect you. And, yeah. uh, but, you know, what's so beautiful about it is, you know, through your accomplishments and your confidence, it's become a non-issue. Yeah. And that is life experience, right? Just yeah. really amazing life experiences that have gotten you to a place where it's really a non-issue. But again, think about how important it is for younger people who are probably going to be listening yeah. to this, who might be struggling with something like that, to just hear that you know, that doesn't define you. It's who you are and what you accomplish yeah. that makes all the difference, right? When when I made, when I participated in the film, that was something that really started to stick with me. Like I've already kind of taken these punches, if you will. And so if I can just be very like present in more people's lives and just kind of say like, there are different, like anyone can be named Shaniqua and that can look a lot of different ways. Like it probably... I mean, hundred percent sure it doesn't always look like me. Um, right. And if someone is named Ashley and, you know, might speak her mind and have an elevated voice, like that's fine too. But the thing that I always think about is I hope it's easier for the next group of, you know, 
young women or people who have had to deal with this to just see at least one example of someone who who understands um, what comes with it, but has been able to still thrive um, despite right. what people might think. So you mentioned that dealing with the lack of diversity and racism at Harvard, the very coveted Harvard, um, was something that had a profound experience um, on you. So talk a little bit about that. Yeah. Um, so when I got in, I mentioned, I thought, oh, wow, I got into this school and then I got there. And in my cohort of 60 people, there were only two black people. But in our class of 240 people, um, I think there were 11 black people, but there were only four black women and only two of us uh, were from the United States. And I went to the dean's office my second week, I mean, uh, maybe first month of school. And it was just like, hey, this is like, this is pretty bad. And he said, I know he'd only been there six months. He said, I put, you know, a group together. They're working on this. Uh, the report should be out. Well, the report should have been out that July, but he said it's coming out soon. And it ended up coming out um, in May of the next year. And in between that time, my second month of school, one of my white classmates asked me if it was okay to use the N-word, but he actually said it. And I was, and so we were at a cohort retreat and um, a song came on that had the word in it. And so he asked me and I was just completely taken aback. And he said, I think he saw my face and said, oh, cause I think it's fine. And I said, would you feel like it was fine if there were more black people in this room right now? And he said, oh, I don't know. And so that was like my first kind of like, this place is not what I thought it would be. Wow. And, you know, again, during that time, um, some black, oh, Dean Weaver, highest ranking uh, black person at the Kennedy School, she left. And she, we find out she kind of got pushed out, but she quit because someone went over her head. Um, one of her direct reports had the ability to go over her head to make a decision that she didn't want. And I think that was like a final straw. Um, but so she left. And then over the summer, some more black women left. And then the final straw. So like at this time, I'm still trying to like <laughs> work on all this stuff. Um, this diversity report comes out. It's it's the quality is pretty bad. Um, you know, one of my classmates raised his hand when it was being presented and said, if any of us turned in something like this, we'd get an F because this is like very poor quality. And then the information was, you know, it was sad. Um, they disaggregated the data um, because, you know, they typically would put all the black students together to, to show how many were at the school, but students coming from black students coming from other countries have a different kind of profile than black students coming from the United States. And when they disaggregated that data, um, enrollment had dropped 10% for black students over the past 10 years. Wow. And so it had gone from 15 to 5%. And so all of this is out and open. And then the next year, um, our Dean of Diversity and Inclusion, Student Diversity and Inclusion, retired in the middle of the academic school year. And I just kind of was like, no one retired in the middle yeah. of the year unless right. something weird is going on. So I asked right. Dean, he is like, you know, she decided to leave. We really wanted her to stay. Um, and then I said, four Black women have left this school. Like, it's hard for me not to think there's like some deeper issue here. And he said, no one's ever said that to me. No problem here. And finally, we have this big diversity committee meeting. The diversity committee is a mixture of students, faculty, and staff trying to tackle issues of diversity at the Kennedy School. And they do this whole presentation for Dean Martinez, who is leaving, give her, say nice words, give her a gift. And I stand up because the tension is so thick in the room. Um, you know, uh, someone else who's interim for, in a position, it's like, okay, now let's brainstorm how we can work on diversity at the Kennedy School. And everyone is just kind of like, are we just going to like ignore the elephant in the room? And so I go up to the mic and I am like trembling <laughs> because I didn't, I really debated if I was going to do this or not, but I don't know, something was just pushing me. And I said, um, you know, Dean Omendorf, who is the dean of the school, I said, I know we talked about this, but I really want to bring it up again. I think all of, all of the students in here deserve an explanation as to why these Black women being the school, like, 
it just doesn't make sense. And then I turned to Dean Martinez and said, if you have anything to share, we would love to hear from you about why you're leaving. So Dean Elmendorf says his same thing, you know, just people have other opportunities, which no one who left had another opportunity. They were just leaving. And then Dean Martinez gets up and says a bunch of flowery things. And so now I'm like, oh gosh, I think I've stepped in it and I shouldn't have brought this up. But then the um, director of HR, who's a black woman, gets up and says, look, I can't discuss why those women left. It's a personnel issue, it's confidential. But as a black woman who's been here for 30 years, this is a very hard environment to work in. And then like everyone just started like saying things and it got back to Dean Martinez. And she said, you know, everyone's been really honest and brave. And like, I want to honor that and be honest about why I'm leaving. And she said, you know, I have not been supported in my role. I've been under-resourced and I don't feel respected here. And it just launched a lot of student organizing that when I left, I didn't feel like, I didn't feel like it had an impact. You know, I, we, a group of us took Marshall Gans's organizing class and we took different aspects of diversity at the school to tackle. And uh, mine was the curriculum. And all I was kind of organizing around is that the faculty should incorporate the impact of race and racism um, on whatever they were teaching. My whole thought was, if you are preparing future policymakers, they have to understand the role that race and racism has played in public policy. Uh, And wow, people were upset. They said I was attacking their academic (laughs) um, autonomy and authority and just very upset by it all. Um, And one professor sent me a very long email about how what I was doing was admirable, but it was way off base. Um, and I didn't even mention the other <laughs> classmate who said the N word, like it was just a bizarre experience for me. And all I wanted was that to be incorporated in. Um, and one of my, well, he wasn't my professor, but he was a professor there. And he just said, you know, they wait for you all to leave every two years and nothing ever changes. And so that was all I needed to hear to say, okay, well, we're going to organize the first year students. And then we talked to the new admits before they even got to the school to just kind of get them up to speed. And now there's actually a mandatory class at the Kennedy School for MPP students on um, race and racism in the United States. And so, you know, I, I, I feel like I helped get that started, but it was the continued efforts of the students who came after us to make that finally a real thing. Um, so... Thanks to you for stepping up that day and saying something um, so important. You know, it's it's hard to hear because you think of Harvard as like, you know, this this elite, the best of the best. Like, you just don't want to hear that this is, you know, a part of, you know, what happens at a place that is, you know, so sought after. And hopefully they're doing better and hopefully they're, you know, working towards, um, you know, solving some of those issues you brought up something that, um, you know, was something that happened in my home with my daughter. Um, you know, she's, uh, about 13 and a half years old. No, sorry, 14 and a half years old. And, um, she came home and she said, mom, can I ask you a question? And I said, sure. She said, why do so many songs use the N word? I don't understand. Like it's, you know, it's, it's such a bad word. And I just don't understand why so many use it. And, it was really interesting because I didn't know how to answer the question. And, you know, first of all, I commended her because it bothered her. Mm-hmm. It really bothered her that um, so many songs were um, using the word. And I didn't know how to answer her. And I and I started to Google it and I started to like, because I wanted to have an answer for her, you yeah. know? Um, and I felt really kind of uneducated in, in the space. And because obviously a lot of people use the word and it's yeah. okay sometimes and it's not okay sometimes, um, you know, for some people. Um, and it was interesting and I'm going to go back to, I don't know why this is coming up twice. Um, but I was on clubhouse. I don't, I'm not on clubhouse as much anymore, but there was a moment where I was there a lot. <laughs> yeah, there was a moment where I was like, Oh, this is cool. And there was a room that was about when it's okay to use the N word. And I thought, okay, well, let me just hear other people speak about it. Um, and gosh, I was so blown away by the conversations that I heard, you know, and I, I entered a room, there was probably about a thousand people in the room. It was a very, it was a full room. Um, I think I was the only white woman in the room. Wow. Um, yeah. Which was, you know, um, an interesting, um, dynamic. And of course they wanted to bring me up on the stage because they're like, why is she here? <laughs> what do you think? And I, you know, was always very nervous. And I told the story. I said, guys, I'm here for this reason. Yeah. And half the room, like, 
commended me. Sorry about that. Um, half the room commended me and the other half like totally attacked me. It was definitely eye-opening to hear, you know, so many people talk about it and what it meant to them. And um, everybody had a different interpretation of it. I think it's great that you went to like at least find something out. Um, and that is one of those questions where it's like, I don't know, people say it and they're other people. So, you know, you can't necessarily know, like, I mean, I guess it also sells, but um, yeah, no, that's, but it's good that she felt, you know, that she could speak up about that. And, you know, people will always have different views on it, but I think it was very brave of you to go into a room it, and it was, I think I think, on the stage. <laughs> yeah, no, it was, I mean, it was, you know, I, I, you know, I stuck through it. I, I got a lot of really harsh criticism, you know, just even asking the question, but again, there was half the room that was like, you know, kudos to her for asking. Yeah. Yeah. It was interesting how it was kind of 50 split, you know, it yeah. was, it was definitely, yeah. and it's still very, yeah, I, a touchy, uh, all right. Well, I think you have answered all of my questions, such an inspiring lightning conversation. Um, I have a couple of really just fast, um, quick rapid fire questions for you. Just first thing that comes to mind. Okay. Um, so my first question is, um, what is your greatest strength? I'm a really good listener, like not just listening to respond, but like actually trying to hear people and, and listen to what they're saying. What is your greatest weakness? Um, I'm getting better at it, but um, saying no, I just never want to upset people. And I'm like, people need help. And then I realize, well, I need rest. So I have to say no sometimes. What is one skill you wish you had that you don't have? I wish I could sing. Although I always tell people if I could sing, I probably would be the most obnoxious person on earth. Um, but I, I like singing. I just can't do it well. So I keep it to myself. That one's mine also. Um, what does success look like to you? Um, that has changed a lot since COVID. And right now it looks like creating um, a work life that gives me more time to just kind of have my personal interest and personal time um, and more downtime. I think that you have answered all of my questions. I really, really appreciate your time today. And you know, thank you for having great, me. Yeah, such great stories. And um, really hope that uh, everybody will get as much out of this interview as I have today. Thank you. It was great to chat with you. Awesome.